You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Before Jeremy left, he and Meg had talked about having children. She smiled and blinked and told him, soon, and then ran into the bathroom and checked that she'd taken her birth control pill that day. She was 28, it was time to think about procreation, and yet Jeremy's long absences were hard enough to bear without children. She just managed to get through each day, brush her teeth, go to work, feed her body, sleep. If it was almost impossible for her to live half a life without the man who was supposed to share all of it, how could she be both father and mother to some unfinished and needy little being? There were days when she imagined going to California, a place of escape with its beaches and wineries, mountains, and fog. She could get a job in an art gallery in one of those dreamy, gentle-named coastal towns, Monterey, Carmel-by-the-Sea, Big Sur. She'd start over, find a man who was always there, who could take normal vacations, have weekends off, call in sick, accompany her to her cousin's wedding or her uncle's wake. She wanted to worry about ordinary things, like whether her husband forgot his lunch or got a bonus— not that he might get shot or that he'd be crossing a street in Baghdad and never get to the other side. He wanted to be back in Baghdad. The platoon leader was new, and Moog worried about his men. It was a pain in the ass to find a different route back to base every day, with the roads blocked off, covered in rubble, and he knew his men would get complacent. Would the young lieutenant remember to rearrange the order of the Humvees so that the insurgents didn't know where the leadership was situated in the convoy? especially with his satellite back-wing antenna sticking out of his passenger window like a bullseye? Would the LT know to stay away from the corner of Yarmouk, near the marketplace, where IEDs seemed to always go off no matter how many times they barricade and searched the street? What about that overpass on Route Tampa where Jay Shalmetti dumped the bodies of the people they had tortured and killed? Did the lieutenant know that they had also started placing bombs under the corpses, hoping to kill the American or Iraqi soldiers who gathered them up and brought them to the morgue? Siobhan Fallon earned her MFA from the New School in New York City. Her stories have been published in the Briarcliff Review, Roanoke Review, and Salamander. She currently lives with her family in the Middle East where her husband is stationed. Her new collection of short stories is You Know When the Men Are Gone. Thank you for joining me, Siobhan. Thank you, Rick. You know, Siobhan, these stories are all set in Fort Hood. And we say that name like it means something to us, but for most of us it means absolutely nothing, and it's really a different world. So I'd like you to describe to me what it's like to be in Fort Hood and how it's different from living in an American city, a regular American city, even though it's situated in the heartland of America. When you drive into Fort Hood, you know immediately that you're on a military base. It's probably, to me, I've been I've seen quite a few military bases in the past 10 years, and Fort Hood is just really all-encompassing. There are tanks, actually retired tanks, lining some of the main streets as well as helicopters, and there's uh, the First Cav Museum and soldiers riding by in their Humvees with their, you know, guns and helmets on getting ready to go train out in the fields or uh, going to the motor pools to fix the different, I don't know, things that they work on all day long. (laughs) It's obvious visually you know as soon as you're near Fort Hood you know that it's the army and big army how big is is it I believe there's 40,000 soldiers working on Fort Hood 40,000 soldiers that's a pretty big city isn't it yeah it's massive now talk about what the living arrangements are there is it apartments is is there like kind of like one of those Russian wartime <laughs> faux suburbs planted in the middle of nowhere with little trees blossoming? or ha- What does it look like when, you're, when you live there? And where did you live? There's all sorts of housing on post. So the apartments are mostly uh, older because there's a lot of new building. And it's probably one of the places in the country that's continuing to build and build and build houses all around. So both on post as well as off post, there's a lot of housing. And soldiers can choose to live within the security of the gates or they can live in the town outside. And because Fort Hood is so big, even, I don't know, 20 miles out, you still get the sense of being like on a military post. It has all sorts. I don't know, there's the housing complexes Mm -hmm. of the sort that I use in my stories Mm -hmm. with the very thin walls and sort of battered and old. And then 
depending on um, the rank, you kind of move up into different neighborhoods within the base. So the better your rank, the better your neighborhood. Yes, it is, actually. Well, uh, when you were living there, were you already writing stories like this? And were you taking notes? Talk about the the genesis of your deciding to write at all. What, had you written before you moved into Fort Hood? Yes. Yeah, I've been writing since I was a kid. So, Well, what, what kind of stories originally inspired you to write? Who, who like lots of authors, when they start writing, want to say, I want to write like this person? Who, do, who did, were you pointing at when you said that, or were you? Not till later, I think, that I started to emulate. I don't know, I went through this Joan Didion kick where I wanted to write very short, crisp sentences and write exactly like the Book of Common Prayer. And Lori Moore, I really love her short stories. And mm-hmm. once I read one, I had to read all of them. And I, I thought I was so funny and always wanted to write really hysterical Lori Moore stories. When I was younger, I don't know. If I just read everything I'd get my hands on. And whatever I was reading, I was probably writing just like that. Now, when you were sitting, when you were living at Fort Hood, uh, and you were writing, uh, you were taking notes. Were you writing about the things that were happening you at, to you at the time? Were these stories conceived there? Yes. My husband and I had moved to Fort Hood, and gosh, within three weeks, he was deployed to Iraq. So I had one deployment at mm-hmm. Fort Hood when I started kind of getting the ideas. And then I started with the um, title story, you know, When the Men Are Gone. And I didn't realize I was writing a book. I just wrote this story about this woman who was eavesdropping through the walls, and I just loved that idea of the things she could hear and imagine, and it just seemed kind of limitless that she could visualize things that may or may not be happening, and the reader wouldn't really know, and then that seemed to just offer all these other stories around that, you know, that housing complex. I just kept writing, and Fort Hood, I was there, and I was seeing issues sort of come up again and again in my friends' lives whose soldiers were also deployed and that was sort of working its way into the stories and Fort Hood started to almost become a character in itself. You know, one of the things I think that's so interesting are some of these kind of recurring themes. And more than that, just the the way you capture the perceptions of the characters because the people who live in these places, even though, again, we're right in the heart of America, you're surrounded by suburbs, you apparently almost are living in suburbs, there's a a whole weird insular social structure, and the people have all these really kind of odd perceptions, and I think you capture that very well. So talk about um, realizing what these perceptions were, because when you moved in there, presumably you hadn't spent a lot of time in, in housing, and how capturing things that you were, I would guess, slowly succumbing to because you were becoming one of these people as you were (laughs) writing about them and describing to us in prose the difference between their perceptions and ours. Yeah, sometimes I don't even realize when people ask me questions about the stories. Mm -hmm. I've forgotten what it was like, you know, on the other side (laughs) as a civilian or what seems strange when people look at this and Mm -hmm. say, really? Military bases are like that? So um, I don't know how aware I was of the the strangeness Mm -hmm. of that life, but um, I remember when I married into it, and I certainly thought a lot of things were odd, uh, like the grass cutting, that you can get a ticket if your grass grows too long, Mm -hmm. or just having to drive in and show a military ID and have somebody check under your car every time you're going in and out of work or different places. So um, so I, I don't, I was aware, I guess, of a little bit, but not consciously writing it. I just was writing day, daily stuff that was going on at Hood. Well, one of the things that I think is so interesting is like the, the visually the way you uh, just clue us in when Meg's in and she's in the first store, I think, mm-hmm. in, in the grocery store. She looks at the at the trays of meat, and what I see as roast beef and pork <laughs> roast and steak and lamb shanks, she sees as just a, a, a sea of war wounds. And yeah. I thought that was really, that's scary. <laughs> did, did you, I mean, these kind of, these stories have a kind of darkness to them. 
that seems extreme and, and a little, and as I say, not, not a little bit scary. You do not seem like a dark person, <laughs> <laughs> but yet you clearly must have had some of those moments. So talk about how you experienced those moments yourselves and how you translated that into prose. I mean, when, when did you start thinking about war wounds? I think as a, a spouse who mm-hmm. has by now three deployments under my belt, you, you kind of can't help thinking maybe in a darker vein sometimes, and at least part of your mind is always worried about the soldier who's deployed, and even if you're avoiding it outright, like I would stay away from news programs that were mm-hmm. talking about the Middle East, and I didn't want to hear about any sort of b- bombing or explosion, but uh, I would find myself in a situation like that, like wondering if human meat was similar to an animal's. And and you just quickly turn it off, but part of you is always knowing something horrible can happen when your soldier's gone. So I was hoping to, I guess, sow a little bit of that throughout the stories. Now, when you were uh, creating these stories, Talk about your, your, a little bit about your process. You gathered notes, uh, and I'm guessing by your joy in the word eavesdropping, you're a prodigious <laughs> eavesdropper. Do you, like, actually write down what you overhear, or do you just kind of, like, record it in your mental, mental uh, Rolodex and then run back and go... Maybe both. I know I definitely keep a lot in my head, but if somebody says something that I need to just capture exactly the way they said it, I will write it down, because... I'm afraid to get it wrong later on. I was a bartender, mm, and I think mm-hmm. that trained me to listen and to, you have to hear a lot of stories when you're bartending, and they're not always, you know, fabulously <laughs> interesting <laughs> stories. So I would find the interest in hours and hours of stories as a bartender, and I think that helps my writing. Well, one of the things I think that... Uh, uh, one of the themes that we see again and again in this book is adultery. And we meet every form of adultery that there is in this book. And I have to ask you, how much of this you know, brushed the edges of your life? I think it's always a fear mm-hmm. um, from both sides. Mm-hmm. The soldier especially because they know that they are they're over there with their other soldiers and have no clue really what's going on in their spouse's life and imagine all the things they would probably be doing if they were home. So I know um, when my husband was a company commander, he would hear stories from his soldiers and he would call me and ask me if I had heard rumors. So I know it's a topic that the soldiers were Mm, trying to find out. So yeah. the soldiers were. So the soldiers would convey these stories to their commander, and they then they'd, you'd, he'd radio back home to find out what the real <laughs> deal was. Yeah, and there's a lot of actually back and forth, and he would want to check on the spouses, and I would of course want to check on the soldiers because I was telling the spouses, you know, the official version what was going on because my husband was the company commander. And then I was at the acting um, family ready news group leader. Mm-hmm. So I was FRG. FRG, exactly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. But um, so we we had to discuss things that were go- that would be very personal, I think, in the outside world, mm-hmm. and that you would not think that you know somebody's boss at IBM would ever be discussing with his spouse about employees, but. It, would, it could put his soldiers in danger. So he would w- need to know if it was something that could be squashed in the, you know, if it was completely a rumor or if there was any truth to it and he needed to get help for the soldier or if I could have the spouse talk to a counselor. So I guess in a way we had to be a little nosy. Uh, that's so interesting to think about that because in terms of a, an employer because I hadn't really grokked that aspect of it. But this is like your boss kind of watching out to see, are you having an affair at the <laughs> office, Joe? No, you aren't. Okay, good. Well, I'm going to, my wife is going to report to your wife that you're not having an affair. <laughs> you want to know what your wife's doing while she's, uh, while you're at work? Well, I mean, that's a, such an interesting dynamic, and that's a whole level of 
intense personal responsibility, mm-hmm. and that comes across in the stories. I, I, so how much, in terms of creating the emotional plotting of these stories, they, there's, these stories have, I think, uh, uh, the plot arcs of these aren't so much actions as emotional changes, which is what makes them so really richly satisfying to read. So talk about creating these kind of uh, plots that are based on emotions as opposed to motions. Yeah, I like that. Um, I know, so I, I had started writing the stories pretty much in the order. Mm-hmm. And then, so of course, Meg, and I just loved Meg with mm-hmm. her surroundings. But um, I, I started thinking about bigger ideas and like just the stress of the deployment on the families. Mm-hmm. So you're right I th- that I was trying to like play out almost how those stresses caused reactions in the characters or emotions. So mm-hmm. um, I was wanting to see and e- almost have each story Examine a set of emotions. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, what it and seems a different like to me. Rea- yeah. Uh, now, in in the story, you know, when the men are gone, uh, the what you have is a is a a bunch of wives living in these paper thin walls. Everybody knows everybody else's business, and you you create an interesting character, uh, Carla, <laughs> the the invasive busybody. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I'm wondering if that was a part maybe you might have found yourself playing just by virtue of the fact that you were, I mean, that might have been called for just by virtue of your position and rank, essentially. Yeah, I um, I didn't seek it out as much as <laughs> I was told a lot of things. So that you, didn't have to, you didn't have to, uh, to <laughs> issue the orders. The orders came to you. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, from both sides, mm-hmm. from talking to my husband or from spouses wanting to tell me what other spouses might be doing and me having to say no gossip or... So you would find yourself... <laughs> do you know what Mary's doing in her spare time? <laughs> you exactly. have to ask Bob for an hour what Mary's doing? <laughs> oh, my God. One of the things I think that's very interesting is that just as there is a hierarchy in the army, there's also what I call a wiferarchy in this book. And you make that very clear. There's a, a, there's a great scene with Ellen Roddy mm-hmm. um, in uh, the story Remission. She goes to the doctors and she looks at somebody and she's trying to figure out the, the rank of the husband by virtue of the way the wife is behaving. And mm-hmm. I thought that was such an interesting observation. Yeah, Ellen Roddy is an example of a wife who wears her husband's rank, which is definitely frowned upon mm-hmm. in the army. But uh, you know, occasionally there are spouses who do it, and I kind of wanted to play or poke a little fun at mm-hmm. that sort of behavior. So I was, I was letting her be sort of wicked, and it was fun for me to write a character like that. So uh, yeah, she's kind of a bad example of an army wife. That. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, one of the things I like about this book is the range of the stories. And you do a great job of covering, I think, a a wide spectrum of human emotion. Um, There's no really repeating aspects of it, yet we have a feel for the the full life of this base. And as a wife, you must be aware that um, people are looking at you and judging you, especially when you're uh, when you're a commander's wife, and you have that kind of uh, FRG uh, responsibility. Uh, talk about um, how that impacts your vision as a writer. I mean, did you feel maybe constrained? There are things there are, are that there were situations you couldn't write about because it would be too close to the truth that somebody might recognize. Oh my God, this is me. I. I asked my husband to read and to make sure that I hadn't crossed any lines, and he was my military expert and my very objective reader mm. and that sort of thing. But I um, I tried very hard to not have characters resemble real-life people. So I would use elements mm-hmm. of or characteristics maybe, but it was just... I sort of compiled them together to create different people. So, Because I would not want to ever read something and see myself, <laughs> you know, so I... 
You played I Mr. Definitely. Potato Head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it, yeah, and there's plenty of room for fiction. You know, I think there's almost crazier stories that I could have written if I wrote from truth and I had to tame it down a little bit because it's very yeah. fiction. Now, one of the, uh, the most interesting characters uh, that we meet is Natalia Torres, who's the kind of new neighbor in You Know When the Men Are Gone. So, and she's not an American, but she's living in America. So she's a, a foreigner living in a foreign part of America. There's a double kind of alienation yeah. there for her. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how much of that, your kind of alienation from your regular life, because here you are, you've spent most of your life, you've got an MFA, you know you're a talented, smart woman, you've been a bartender, you've lived out in the real world, yet now all of a sudden you're in this kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, apartment hell with, with rules, <laughs> all sorts of weird rules and social orders. Mm. Talk about how that kind of uh, finds its way into this character of Natalia Torres. Well, I'm an oldest child, so I've always tried to listen to rules, listen to my parents. So uh, it wasn't that hard for me to, you know, live by the Army's rules. Mm -hmm. But um, with Natalia, I really, I was thinking of spouses and how they get uprooted so often and don't have the systems they would have at home. You know, they have to start all over again to find the grocery store that they like or a babysitter for their kids, you know, each new base and thinking how much more horrible it would be to not even be American and speak the language. And so she seemed like the extreme example of having a difficult time assimilating in, in you know, any American culture, let alone what could be a very tight knit military community. And um, I wanted to play her against May or Meg who is also is feeling very displaced herself, and then there was an, almost another version of her. So I definitely was aware of that, and I guess there are times that I, I too would feel a little maybe thrown off by the different moves we've taken, or you know, having to start again over and over and over again. So. I, I would imagine so. How yeah. often did you have you had to move? Do you say ten years you've been in the military, right? Essentially, ten years I've been yes with my husband. Uh -huh. and, How uh, many times have you moved in that? Let's see, we've been to three different bases, mm -hmm. and then he's had longer training exercises, so like a six-month stint at Fort Benning. So, and then of course this last move now that we're taking to Jordan, which has been this <laughs> last month of. A lot of upheaval of moving cross country and everything ending up in Amman. So, so I guess four big moves we've had. And you just this month moved to Jordan. Well, he's left already, and I follow him mm -hmm. in a few weeks. Okay. But our house—we, I mean, we were in Monterey, and our house is all packed up, and we've been living out of suitcases since December seventh, and visiting family and s sleeping on friends couches and things like that. Couch surfing before you go <laughs> yeah. to Jordan. That's a huge move. And that, well, there's another book right there. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I would imagine so. Uh, one of the things that you do very well is not all of these stories are, are told from the perspective of Army wives. Uh, some of them are told from the men's perspective. And when did you, what made you decide that you could get away with that? I mean, was that something you said right away, I'm going to try to do this? Or uh, did you, you know, did you have some hesitancy to, to put yourself in the eyes of a guy who's, you know, in Iraq? Yeah, definitely. And it sort of goes against everything I was trying to do with the rest of the book of mm -hmm. writing what I know. So I, I wasn't sure if I could take on a male's point of view and get away with it. Mm -hmm. But um, that story of Moog, uh, Camp I Liberty. love Moog. Oh, it's, thank it's you. It's a really fun story. It's uh, <laughs> It, it, it's one of the stories I think in here. There's a kind of a, you have an interesting sense of humor. It, it, it's these stories that are often kind of funny, while they're just seriously, seriously dark. And, and, and the story of Moog slash uh, David is is I think one of, one of the best. So tell us a little bit about coming up with that story. Did you know somebody who like underwent that kind of personality change? I. 
A friend, or my husband has a friend who had a similar beginning with the Army where he had had a very successful career in New York City and then joined up, um, just, vol- you know, enlisted mm-hmm. and was suddenly surrounded by very young soldiers. And he had had a you know, very established life in New York City and he was older and having to train with 18-year-olds who were talking about football, you know, all these things, whereas he was reading Proust or something, you know, just (laughs) this huge disparity. So that fascinated me. And Mm -hmm. he would visit us a lot. And uh, I think he needed an escape from like barracks living. So that got me thinking about that sort of clash and the reasons people would have for joining. So he definitely inspired me to start writing the story. But then the elements were quite different of Moog's family life and all that just I don't know I I live in near an area where uh, in New York where Moog's family lives not mm-hmm. so well one of the things I think too an- another story that I think is is truly chilling and also somewhat funny though again is the story leave wherein uh, one of the characters uh, Nick uh, finds himself with time off he's suspicious about what's going on at home and again, this theme of adultery comes out. And in this case, um, the, he, he suspects his wife is having an affair. And his solution for this is to invade his own home. Did you know somebody who that? Did that happen? No, that's actually 100% fiction. <laughs> really? really? Yes, I, well, I'm happy I, to say because that well. is a terrifying story, I admit. But uh, yeah, completely. I, I didn't know anything like that. And Again, as far as was, you know, at least. Well, as far as I know, yes. But that was, again, it was me loving the idea of what you hear and what you conjure up in your own head and mm-hmm. if it's actually what's going on. So, well, One of the things I love about that story that's so interesting is that this man who's been married to a woman and is now like the hider in the house, he's this creepy crawler living in the basement, says that um, she, he says... He's wondering if his wife would think that he's, you know, come back and if he's no longer the man, you know, that would she recognize him. But he's already, he's gone around the bend. He doesn't know that he is no longer the man who left that house in the first place. Yeah. And so would you talk about um, creating this very, very creepy character? And when when you started the story, did you know how it would finish? When I started the story, I had a different ending, mm. and I men mm-hmm. who had read it said, "You can't have this ending. This ending isn't working with the buildup of, just as you said, the fact that he's swerved so completely off of the path of normalcy mm-hmm. that because I, I, I don't know." I, I had a happier ending. You had a happier ending. That's for sure. I certainly did, and I was desperately clinging to it. And everyone, my husband and my literary agent kept telling me it just wasn't working, and I fought it and fought it, and finally I gave in to to maybe that Nick did have a darker side. Well, uh, now one of the perceptions that we encounter in this book, and you mentioned this briefly, is that when I sit down at night and watch, if I allow myself to watch CNN, I just see things happening and they're happening far away. It's completely impersonal to me. Mm-hmm. But to you and to all the people on the base, it's a completely different experience, isn't it? Yeah. Or we'd definitely be looking to see if we recognize the soldiers and the name tags and the patches if it's 1st Cav or 4BCT. You know, we would those details that other people might not pick up on. Like to us, it's like, oh my God, that's my husband's classmate, his unit right there. And so again, it goes back to me avoiding watching that sort of thing because I, I don't want to, I don't want to see those things that you, I don't know. You don't want to find out news that personal news from impersonal exactly. news source. Yeah. And be completely unprepared for it like that. Well, you do a great job of creating characters. One of the characters who shows up in a couple of stories that I really like is DuPont. Oh, good. <laughs> I, I, I love DuPont, I and I'm hoping he's going to come back in your next book. So tell us a little bit about and And when, the way you describe him, it's like 
instantly we see him. I mean, okay. so uh, talk about your prose is very compact. I mean, every these stories are very visual. So talk about like compressing things so hard and fast that we get this feeling instantly of, of that we know these people and we know what they look like. Uh, maybe it's just luck. I don't know. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. Um, I did edit a lot and mm-hmm. rewrite a lot. So it's probably half of what it was when I first wrote it mm-hmm. and just cutting down and wanting to get a, a certain sparseness to especially those uh, more male-dominated stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it also strikes me, too, <coughs> that... Uh, I, the sense of connection between the stories, how did that develop? And did you go back when you were writing and revising? Did you revise the, to, to bring them a little more together once you had all the basic uh, the plots? A little bit. I always had uh, Kit Murphy. Mm-hmm. was always Oh, I love Kit, Kit Murphy. Murphy. Yeah. And, yeah, and he always was in that, you know, the final story. Mm-hmm. Um. And then DuPont, I think he originally was in that story. Mm-hmm. And then I, I really liked him and liked writing about him, so I worked him into the Moog story. Mm-hmm. So some characters were always there, and then some I nudged them a little bit because I wanted to write more about them and figure out more of their story. Well, I, I like the story that uh, where we, we meet Ellen Roddy in one story, and then, then we get to hear a lot more about John Roddy, her husband, in another story. And that kind of like a half, it's like a half rhyme in a poem or something. Um, it gives us, you know, kind of, and it's nice to see the characters from a different perspective. That gives us a really fuller picture. And, and I'm wondering if you, as a writer, were thinking, wow, I want, if this was an accident or if this was, I want to give a fuller picture. It's like, you know, the three difference between, you know, if you only had the red side of the 3D glasses. <laughs> uh, yeah, I definitely wanted to give different points of view on the same person, at least a little bit. And you mentioned Carla. Mm-hmm. I wanted a character to think that she was just this busybody mm-hmm. and really annoying, and then to show her side later on in that, she had her own stresses and things that she was avoiding thinking about mm-hmm. that made her out to be that kind of annoying I don't know. busybody. Yes, exactly. So yeah, definitely. I'm glad you picked up on that or that I was a little bit successful. One of the things too that we see too is the way the army bureaucracy that really impacts people's lives and it's in that the kind of everyday things that we think of going to the grocery store or something uh, in a in an in a base like this, it's completely the. It, it's as if there's a giant spotlight with a grid through it, shining overhead into everybody's <laughs> lives, and you're gonna bump up against the edges of that grid. And and I love the the scene at the at the grocery store, where where she has to go get uh, her her special parking. And oh gosh! It's just uh, that's really a, an, an interesting and heartrending kind of scene. Yeah, the Gold Star parking yeah. spots. Yeah, talk about the different parking spots. Did you encounter that? Do you do you have a special parking spot? No, no, I certainly not. I mean, the commanding general mm-hmm. would, or uh, the you know commanding officers and sergeants of a base, they they would have a spot. So it's actually the Gold Star spot is right next to like the highest ranking person on the base. So it's meant as an honor, but of course, it's not perceived that way by person the parking war there. widow exactly mm-hmm. and i i received an email today from a war widow who had said i refuse to have a gold star license plate on my car because i don't want that sort of scrutiny and people to know so i think it is you know something that is avoided in the army just they're meaning to do something you know in a good way and it just can't translate in that sort of loss. One thing that also strikes me too is that you talk about um, the way some of these women long for their outside. And it's almost like they're in, in a sense, it's like they're in prison. <laughs> I, I mean, really, it, it's, it's it, because the longing for outside at least leads to that kind of feeling that they're in this kind of prison. I'm thinking of uh, Kailani, um, uh, and some of the other characters who are, you know, have these lives, and, and Helen, who some some of them, 
don't can't can't let go and and did you know people who couldn't let go and how did you feel well i think uh part of the the good thing about being within the confines of a base or living near a base is Mm -hmm. you're surrounded with other spouses who are going through the same thing so you don't really notice or you're you're always noticing if your soldier's not there but it becomes its own strange kind of normal that you and your friends are living without their mate. Mm-hmm. And, but then when you're out in the civilian world or if you go to a wedding and you see all these couples, it's it's really difficult. And I think you can't, and of course you're wishing your soldier was there. So you're kind of walking a fine line. And there, I mean, you long for what is deemed ordinary in the real world, you know, a couple, what everyone wants, Mm -hmm. and to just do all of those things that it seems like the rest of the world is doing, except you because your soldier's deployed. So you kind of want to hide away with the other spouses who are in the same situation and not be forced to think what you're missing out on the way you would in the civilian world. So I, I don't know, that's why my characters, I think there's part of the longing to Oh, I'm just done with it, and I want to. I want to go back to the way I think life ought to be. And then there are the ones who decide this is the way life ought to be because this soldier is my life, or you know, a very important part of the life I want to keep. So they all have to make that decision themselves, just the way the spouses do. What decision did you make? Oh, I'm still happily married, so <laughs> I made the right decision, I think. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you use a, a word that an ordinary civilian would use, soldier, to describe your husband. Mm. And, and I, that's, that's an interesting choice of language. And, and is that, is that something that comes from living on the base? I guess it must be. Yeah, I think so. So when, when your husband's gone, you don't say my husband's gone, you say my soldier's gone. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I don't know what would come naturally now now that you have me thinking about it. I'm not <laughs> sure what I would want. But yeah, I mean, there's T-shirts like I Heart My Soldier and mm-hmm. bumper stickers, especially a place like Fort Hood. Mm-hmm. So It's big enough to be essentially a city in itself. I mean, oh, it has yeah. huge suburbs and, and shopping centers. And, and this gets to another interesting aspect of this book is that the women who live there, and presumably you, it, it we just heard, uh, use fall into you know you have a slightly different language from the rest of us, different different American. I mean, but when uh, uh, the the woman's children go, let's see here, uh, when when, when uh, uh, is it Camp Liberty where her children go missing? Oh, uh, remission. Yeah, remission. Yeah, when when her children go missing, missing, she doesn't say my children are missing. She says her a wall. No, that's not how I would describe my children. Right, going, right. I'd say, where, where the heck is that gank? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah, I guess the husband's terminology just gets into the spouse's lingo. I don't know all the acronyms that we hear all the time. Yeah, because they, and uh, the the FRGs and and, right. and and the other things. So, how much of that do you think once you're immersed in that different language? I think that must lead, I think, to some of this kind of change of perceptions. You know, that's one of the things that that is so interesting that one of your characters says, time is the enemy, just waiting, waiting, Mm. waiting. And you're waiting for your spouse to come back. Yeah. And you see, I mean, I remember those moments and just waking up in the morning. It seemed like such a long day ahead. And, And knowing, like, that's a horrible way to think about your life. But I feel like, and the spouses, we always say, oh, the year is going to go so quickly. Don't worry. It'll go fast. And you shouldn't think that way. A year is a long time. There's so many wonderful things you could be doing. And to want to hurry it up, it's just, I don't know. It's a neat thing to think about. Well, uh, also, um, you talk about, uh, uh, in the story about, um, it, I think it's uh, Moog, where, where, you know, you have, they have these different terms like terps and, and, and stuff. So talk about, you know, making sure you get all the language right when you're writing from the, the men's point of view. Did you run that past your husband, your military editor? Oh, yeah. 
he was wonderful. He definitely was my military ex or expert. Um, and and it also goes back to my eavesdropping, where oh. I would listen <laughs> at all the company barbecues and picnics and battalion military balls. You know, you soldiers tell their stories and. I'm a good listener, so I, I would want to try and get those details right, and then especially I would run all of that by my husband first to make sure, and there were times where he would email his buddy, when he did come back, he was emailing friends who were deployed to say, go look in a bathroom and read off the graffiti, or like, you know, email me the best graffiti you see, Siobhan's writing a story and needs something funny, so <laughs> he was he was a tremendous help, and a lot of his friends were always like, I want a story about me, Siobhan. This is a great story. <laughs> Write this. So. One of the things that's interesting, too, is that just some of the st statistics, what you talk about, the interpreters uh, in, in, in uh, Iraq, is, is really astonishing. Something that, again, that we just don't see or it doesn't even impinge the civilian consciousness here in America. But it's got to be something that's on the minds of the men and the, who are there and of their wives as well. So talk about the, these kind of statistics. What happens to the interpreters? Well, it was something that my husband was always talking about when he came back and his friends of these amazing friendships he would form with his interpreters who were with him day in and day out and doing these dangerous missions, and they were getting very little credit or, you know, a lot of them wanted to come to America. And he, he emails and talks to some of them from his first deployment in 2004 to Afghanistan who are like eagerly trying to get to America. So I was really fascinated with their plight because they, they are targets. I mean, they have to wear, a lot of them nowadays wear masks to cover their identity because they don't want to be killed. And, um, and to think that they're helping the Americans and, you know, they're trying to help their own country. So I wanted to have an interpreter who seemed very real that, I would want to be friends with and mm -hmm. just sort of give voice to something I don't think we really think about very often when I mean our troops leave we go there for a year and we and we come home and they're still there working in and out day in day out with the Americans so and a lot of them unfortunately have paid a horrible price for it yeah you said there's a in, in the book the quote is what a 40 percent mortality rate 40% of the interpreters are, are killed. Yeah, I hope that's changed. Uh, that's terrifying. A yeah. and, but it speaks, too, I think, uh, powerfully and evocatively to the bravery of these people. Exactly, yeah. A and, and to your character, Renessa, who, who becomes in, involved with Moog. And I, I think that's a, such a, a, an interesting and, and sweet kind of story, mm. uh, bittersweet and, and kind of scary when you were creating the kind of the arc of that story, uh, how much of this did you know in advance, and how much of, do, of it did did you like work out in the writing? Because it's a it's a great kind of it's not I can't is it a love triangle? Not exactly. Mm. I mean, two of the points don't even know one another hardly exists. Right. Uh, when I'm writing, I usually have one really crisp scene in my head mm -hmm. that gets the story going, and I. I usually have endings, too, so I kind of want to get to that ending. And that story I worked on for a really, really long time and did a lot of research on women's roles in Iraq and how it had changed, you know, how Saddam had changed the rights of women from mm -hmm. the beginning to the end. So, well. One of the you, what you what you say in the book is that uh, the character says uh, no one notices the women in this country and therefore no one notices how much the women notice and I thought that was such an interesting observation. Oh, thank you. A as you were writing these stories, you were probably how many years did you spend writing these stories? And probably three. Three years. So as you were writing these stories and revising them. I guess a lot of stuff has to have happened. I mean, right. and, and I'm wondering how many of these stories were impacted by things that happened during that time, just in the personal lives of the people around you. Did you find yourself changing the stories as things happened just because you felt better informed by some something that happened around you? I 
I probably did. And I, I wrote the stories, actually, the first draft of each story very quickly. Mm-hmm. Like I almost did a story a month. Mm-hmm. And I was um, pregnant with my daughter, and I felt this insane creativity. And I, I knew when this baby's born, I'm going to be in big trouble, so I've got to get everything down quickly. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then I sort of tried to go back and create the layers. So I'm sure they were constantly changing and being informed with things going ar- happening. But I, I don't know if there were like one political event or a news event that changed any story in a dramatic way. I wasn't talk- thinking so much about news events, but just events in the, in the base around mm. you, you know, that if, uh, for example, you saw somebody who was in a situation similar to John Roddy, left behind, or somebody, you know, if that kind of thing, it, not so much on the world scale, but just on a personal scale, right. if those kind of things helped inform your stories, when, I guess once you got the first draft down. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit of a sponge, so <laughs> I was taking things in all the time and and always wondering what would happen if, mm-hmm. you know, especially in a small community like the army. So so yeah, and again, I was listening to stories, so the details that I could pick up, I would definitely try and weave in it somehow. You know, one of the things that's really fantastically wonderful about this book, I will say, is how apolitical it is. We don't, I mean, this could be any war, pretty much anywhere, pretty much. I mean, there's obviously some of the specifics of the stories. How did you, you must have worked pretty hard to scrub that stuff out, or I mean, because I guess it's got to be present on the base, is it? You know, I think Soldiers try really hard to be apolitical. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, it's their job, and they don't want to really get into arguments mm-hmm. one way or another because it's what they have to do. And I feel like the spouses, it's almost an unspoken rule to not talk politics because mm. it's not going to change what your soldier's doing. And I don't know. There are lots of unspoken rules, aren't there? There Talk are a lot of <laughs> unspoken rules, yeah. Talk about you some of those rules that you have to figure out yourself. I mean, when you get there, there it's not like there's a guidebook, you know. There is a guidebook. Uh, there is a guidebook? Mm, you can buy a military spouse's guide, yes, you can. Yeah. <laughs> I have it. I mean, yeah, <laughs> when does, I first got married. Does it have the... Uh, some of these unwritten rules, uh, you know, of behavior, how to behave, how to make sure to mow your lawn, make sure, you know, you're living next door to somebody, keep it quiet? Uh, I feel like the the biggest rule is how your actions reflect on your soldier mm. and that spouses need to be aware. And ag- again, small community, soldiers are all working together, living together at times for long periods, so... Rumors are very easily, you know, spread or disseminated. So you have to behave in a way that doesn't cause rumor. I don't know. That would be my, if I, if somebody asked me one thing of advice, I would say, you know, behave in a way that doesn't make people talk about you. Exactly, and that won't look poorly on your soldier. Mm-hmm. Now you're moving to Jordan in a month. I'm wondering, will you keep writing, and will you write there? Oh, yeah, of course. That's fantastic. I I can hardly wait to read (laughs) these stories because this is kind of a, um, I guess, an inverse situation for you, isn't it? Have have you been there yet? No, no, not yet. Because you'll be essentially, uh, literally, on a desert island in a desert. Yeah. (laughs) Not in the middle of an ocean. You're right. Yeah, right in between Iraq and Israel, so I'm very excited to see. Boy, that yeah, <laughs> I know. scary. That's <laughs> like living between Arma and Ged. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to, not necessarily the address I'd want to take up. <laughs> well, it's supposed to be pretty westernized okay. and one of the safest mm-hmm. Middle Eastern countries, so that's what my husband keeps telling me, so <laughs> now, I'll let you know. <laughs> Do you think when you go there you might write a novel or try to, or... Are you going to stick with a short story form? I'm actually working on a novel right mm-hmm, now, mm-hmm. and um, that's set in Hawaii, mm-hmm. and it's about a soldier and his spouse. So this is, would be the Kailani, uh, Kailani. It, yeah. Is, is that her? It's is, not actually, uh-huh. but uh, 
I take it you must have spent We lived some... in, yes, that was our first post. Oh. It was Hawaii, so. Mm. I don't know, but I'm almost finished with that one, and I have to send it to my editor, so hopefully I have something completely new while I'm in Jordan. Now, when you uh, are took up writing a novel, that's a very, very different form from a short story. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you, what made you decide to do that, and how did you approach it in a way, manner that was different from a short story? Especially linked short stories, because this might be called what in the science fiction world they'd call a fix-up novel, where they, where some <gasps> science fiction writer would, in, this is in the 30s, they dash off a bunch of stories, uh-huh. and then they wanted to make, you know, sell those, sell their dime novels with the tentacle thing on the cover for 35 <gasps> cents, and they put together what they call a fix-up, and there are many of the most famous science fiction novels are fix-ups. Wow. How do you keep your when you've done something that's along the lines of a fix-up? It's not really. But when you've done something like that, how do you keep your novel from becoming that? I was actually working on the novel when I started writing these stories. Okay. And the novel just seemed so huge and difficult to work on that I wanted to focus on a smaller segment of life, I mm-hmm. guess. So so I don't really know how I'm going to finish the novel. but Because, <laughs> it, again, it's just so – I mean, a short story of 20 pages that you can just – really focus on every sentence and turn it around and I don't know it's fun I I love the short story form and Mm. maybe maybe I'll go back to that the next round but now I'm tackling like years you know it's it's such a different concept for Mm. me so Knock on wood for me, Rick, that I <laughs> pull it off. <laughs> I look forward to reading the results sooner rather than yeah, later. Thank you. I've been speaking with Siobhan Fallon. Her new book is You Know When the Men Are Gone. Thank you for joining me, Siobhan. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.